You can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, good morning. My name is Rob Collis, and I'm on our pastoral team. And it is a joy to be with you today, even though we've got a massive hole here in the front, because no one wants to sit in the front. I don't, there's no splash zone at St. Pete's anymore. Like, I'm, I'm also too far away to actually be able to spit if I do spit when I speak. It's okay to sit in the front, just for what it's worth. Um, it's really good to have you here, though, so thank you for joining. Uh, the Roman poet Horace, 2,000 years ago, said, Carpe diem. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize the seat in the front. Seize the day. Trust tomorrow as little as you may. Those timeless words have captured the hearts and minds of countless throughout the centuries. In fact, in the, the film The Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams says, Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Well, for those of you who have watched Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda's famous refrain throughout that whole Broadway musical hit is, I'm not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. Which feels weird as an Englishman to say. <laughs> After all, we're told life is short. This is the only life we're going to live, so live it up. Go and make the most of it. But whatever you do, don't waste your life. Don't throw away your shot. And this idea, it, it pervades so much of how we live. And it shapes us in so many more ways than we can possibly realize. And it's creating this baseline anxiety in our society that we always feel this need to be doing more and making the most of what we have. But this is not the message of the Christian faith. In our passage today, Jesus tells a parable. It's about two people. It's a parable of contrasts person who did not waste their shot, and someone who did. And he's going to challenge us today. So as we come to this passage, I want to explore this question. In light of the kingdom of heaven, who is really wasting their shot? In light of the kingdom of heaven, who is really wasting their shot? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. And if you don't have a physical Bible, we actually have copies in the lobby. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take one home with you. That's kind of our gift to you. If you're also a member of the modern age, you can also go to Google and go to BibleGateway.com or Bible.com and allow your face to be illumined by the glowing warmth of the Word of God. Uh, and everything will also be on the screen behind me. But Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 9, we read, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linens. And lived in luxury every day. At his gate was a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. Now, I just want to press pause really quickly. Uh, and I want to address the elephant in the room in this passage. Um, because let, let's be honest, this passage talks about Hades and fire and torment. And for some of us, ever since we heard Michael read that just before the creed, we've kind of been checked out. It's like, what is going on? What is going to happen today? Am I going to hear this turn and burn fire and brimstone message? Not quite. Um, but what, I, I want to invite you to all come back really quickly because I've got two really important things I just need to say off the bat. The first is this. Hell is real. 
There is such a thing as hell. And there's much that can be said and debated about that. Um, there does exist some eternal reality in which people do not experience God's goodness. But second, this passage is not about hell. This passage is not about hell. Now, it's good to have questions about life and death and faith. In fact, I still have some questions I'm working through myself. But I know people sometimes come to this passage and they talk about heaven and hell and everything in between. And I don't think that's actually the point of this passage. I don't. I think that's actually going to distract us from what Jesus is actually trying to tell us today. So if you've got questions about the afterlife and, and you want to explore and discuss that, we would love to talk with you. And I'd love to get a coffee and chat about that with you. But this parable is actually about something even more near and dear to us than hell. And frankly, it's something just as uncomfortable. It's about what we're really living for. This whole chapter in Luke's gospel is Jesus asking the question, what are you really living for? Are you living for yourself, or are you living for God? And, and the underlying question is perhaps even harsher. Are you wasting your life living for yourself, or instead, are you living for God? In verse 14, we discover that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They were the religious teachers and leaders of the day. And at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus talks about money. And, and last week, Phil did an excellent job helping us understand another really difficult teaching of Jesus. There's been a few of those lately for us. And Jesus famously teaches that you cannot serve both God and money. It just doesn't work. And then we see an exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus in verse 14 and 15. We read, The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. You can also translate it as, They ridiculed Jesus. Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. See, Jesus is putting his finger on a pressure point for the Pharisees. He's touching a nerve. Because they loved money. And they loved having the approval of others. They loved living for themselves and living for what they thought was the good life. And in response, as kind of a defense mechanism to try and numb and avoid the painful truth Jesus has just called them out on. They ridicule and mock him. They don't want to listen to him explain that they can't love their possessions and also love God. They don't want to hear that the vision that they've been pursuing is actually a wasted life. They don't want to be confronted with the truth that their love of money and their desire to be exalted among the people because of their wealth and their possessions they don't want to be confronted with the truth that their brazen pursuit of status and the good life has divorced them from loving and serving God. Jesus is saying that they've wasted their shot, but they don't want to hear it. So they, they try and shut Jesus up. They ridiculed him, and they tried not to listen to him. And perhaps we need to ask ourselves if we're doing the same thing. In what ways are we holding Jesus at a distance so that we won't be inconvenienced by him? The Pharisees ridiculed him. What do we do? Do we ignore him or undermine him? Maybe explain ways to justify what it is that we do. What do we do? 
whatever it is we do, Jesus keeps telling us and them that we're living out of step with God. And he does it with a parable. It was about a rich man who had everything. He lives the, the good life and he had it made. He wore the finest clothes and he wore the most expensive of designers. And every single day, he ate like a king. When everyone else had been eating soup and bread and fruit, the rich man was gorging himself on sumptuous delicacies. And at the front gate of his home, there was a beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus, who was covered in sores, had been laying there down before his gate. It was almost as though he'd been placed there or even thrown there by other people because they figured that at least the rich man might be able to throw the poor guy some scraps to eat. And just to add insult to injury, the mangy dogs that wandered the street would come and lick his sores. And all that Lazarus desired, all he wanted, was just to eat the scraps from the rich man's table. He just wanted to survive and eat the rich man's rubbish. I've already said that this is a parable of contrasts. And there's something subtle about how Jesus sets up this parable that we need to pay attention to. Because you see, only one of these people has a name. The rich man who had been known by everyone for his wealth and lavish parties, who had been exalted among the people, he's nameless. But the desperate, helpless beggar has a name. The rich man is known to the world, but he's unknown before God. But Lazarus, while he's left despised and rejected outside the gate, left alone to fight off all the dogs that are licking his sores, he is seen and he is known by God. So the scene is set. The rich man, he lives it up. He doesn't waste his shot. He lives the good life in his comfortable and luxurious abode. And at his doorstep lies Lazarus, the desperate beggar who is left alone to fend for himself. And then, well, they die. I mean, after all, it's, it's inevitable, right? We will all die in the end. It happens to the rich, and it'll happen to the poor. It'll happen to you, and it'll happen to me. In verse 22, we read that the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And again, we see a contrast the rich man was given a proper burial. People noticed when he died. They mourned his death. They paid their respects. They probably held a beautiful funeral service where they honored the rich man and all the good things he did in his life. And then they laid him to rest in the ground. But Lazarus had none of that. No one noticed when Lazarus died. The poor beggar was likely left to rot on the side of the road. And he would have been left to the dogs to be eaten. No one on earth took any notice when Lazarus died. But heaven took notice. Heaven took notice, and God sent his angels to carry him to Abraham's side. Lazarus was brought up to paradise and was seated at the place of honor beside his spiritual father, but not the rich man. Instead, we're told that he ends up in Hades. And in verse 24, we read that the rich man calls out to Abraham and says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. 
But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Father Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Israel, and the story of his life takes up a good portion of the book of Genesis. And the rich man, here he calls out to him and says, Father Abraham. That means that he was an Israelite. He belongs to the people of God. But he didn't end up in paradise. When he died, he didn't end up at Abraham's side, basking in the presence of God. He belongs to the people of God. He looked the part, he played the role, but he didn't live for God. In fact, he later says that he never bothered to listen to Moses or the prophets. He rejected the words God spoke to his people. And in doing so, he rejected God. And there are two things we should notice here. The first thing is this. This man only thinks about himself. He only thinks about himself. His vision is set on himself, not on God. While he turned his eyes upward in the midst of his torment, and he saw Abraham. His request is not that he might be with him, but rather that he might not be in pain. He sees Abraham, and he calls to him, saying, Hey, give me some relief. Give me some reprieve here. I mean, you've got Lazarus at your side, up there with you. How about you send him down to me to come help me out? Even in his deathly torment, he still desires to live for himself and to make things as pleasant as possible for himself. And he commands Abraham to have mercy on him and to send Lazarus to his aid. Both of those verbs, they're commands. While he calls Abraham father, he treats him like a slave. This rich man is still living for himself, just as he always has. The second thing is the rich man knew Lazarus' name. He says, send Lazarus. How did he know his name? He sees the man who's been at his gate, who's begged him for food, the man he's always ignored. He sees him, and he identifies him by name. He doesn't say, hey, send that beggar. He says, send Lazarus. The Bible scholar David Garland explains, the rich man was so used to power in his old life and the clout his money gave him that he acts as if things are unchanged even in Hades. He does not repent and thinks that he can order Abraham to send Lazarus to be his lackey. This detail reveals that he recognized Lazarus and knew his name. He could not have been unaware that Lazarus was lying at his gate. Though he never spared a thought for Lazarus' needs during his lifetime, the rich man, self-centered even in death, thinks Lazarus should minister to his suffering now. How many times did Lazarus cry out to him as he went through his gate, Have mercy on me. He knew his name. You see, the rich man, he's always lived for himself. He's been aware of some of the stuff going on around him. He's even known the name of the guy begging at his doorstep. 
but he never lifted a finger to help. He lived in the light of himself, and he lived for himself. And he cared so much about living his life his way, the way that he wanted, living for the things that he thought mattered best, seeking the comfort and wealth and the status and the approval of others, that he couldn't care less for the people around him in need. And when I picture this scene, I, I, I can't help but just be reminded of the Downton East side. And the juxtaposition of extravagant wealth and abject poverty here in our own city. I, I used to live out in Hastings Sunrise. And, and I remember a time when I was riding on the bus to come to church. I was riding on the number 14 bus, which goes through Maine and Hastings. And next to me on the bus, there was this young couple. And as we were getting close to, to, to Maine and Hastings, um, I overheard the woman say to the man, oh, th this bus goes through Maine and Hastings. I wouldn't have gone on it if I'd remembered that. And then with, with a sneer, she added, I hate seeing that part of town. How often do we go out of our own way to avoid the uncomfortable juxtaposition of our own wealth? Or even of our own getting by compared to those who are less fortunate than us? Perhaps, perhaps you and I are a little bit more like this rich man than we dare to admit. When the rich man is told by Abraham, I can't send Lazarus to you, he changes his focus. And in verse 27, he says, well, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And you know, that was probably the most selfless thing he ever said or did in his life. But Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. It's almost like he's saying, well, they already have the voice of God speaking to them through through the scriptures. They can just go read the Bible. He says, No, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. No. They don't want to read the Bible. They don't want to do that. They, they don't want to listen to what has been said of old. I know my family. They, they didn't believe it. They don't believe it. I didn't. But if someone would just rise from the dead, that, that would solve it. They would listen and believe it all then. They would be able to stop living for themselves and start living for God if only you could send Lazarus back to them. But Abraham doesn't buy it. He doesn't buy it. He says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Sending Lazarus would not convince them to repent. Their attention is so fixed on themselves that were Lazarus actually to come back to them, they wouldn't listen. And they wouldn't listen because they are too focused on living for themselves. They're too focused on maintaining their own lives and living for them. They are the Pharisees who love their life and their wealth and who don't want to waste their shot. They're focused on having the approval of others in society and being exalted by others and justifying how they're living. And they don't want to listen to Moses and the prophets who speak against them a word of rebuke, whose words tell them that they are living 
in a way which is counter to how God would have them live. And for a dead man to rise and tell them this very same message, it, it wouldn't change anything. They don't want to listen because they don't want to hear. They don't want, to, they don't want for their lives to live their lives for God. They want to live their lives for themselves. And they don't want to listen to any voice that tells them otherwise. They're just going to drown it out. They don't want to listen to Moses who said that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and your neighbor as yourself. And they don't want to listen to Jeremiah who said, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. And they wouldn't even want to listen to the Apostle Paul when he wrote, if we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, the voices that we listen to, they, they tend to have a, a bit of a, a tendency to inform how we live. If we listen to the, the voice from eternity, if we listen to the voice of God in our lives, then we will live according to his light. We will live in the light of eternity, and we will live in the light of Jesus. But if instead we listen to our own voice, or to the voices which tell us how to live for the now, to live it up, to justify ourselves before others and be exalted by them, then our lives will be lived in the light of ourselves. And in the end, we're just going to throw away our shot. And maybe we can live somewhat morally. We may not live as, as proudly or as boastfully and boisterously as, as these Pharisees like this rich man, reveling in our own comfortable private castles. But even the fact that we don't do that can become an attempt to justify ourselves before others. And I, I don't always get this right. I, uh, I don't think I'll ever forget this. Uh, before the pandemic, we had another curry and trivia night. Um, so we've got one coming up. And I, I, was, I was heading there, I was taking the bus, and again, going through the downtown east side. And I made a, a bus transfer at Maine and Hastings. And as I was walking between my stops, there was a woman who crossed the street, and she just beelined for me. And she seemed malnourished and looked pretty worse for wear. And when she came over, she started speaking to me in this mix of English and, and French. It was, it was kind of a broken English. And she was asking for help to get some money for a hostel where she could spend the night. And she said that she hadn't eaten for six days and that she was surviving off of cigarettes. And I, I have to admit that I tried to brush her off. In fact, I, I lied to her. I don't often carry cash in my wallet. Uh, but I had $25 in my wallet that day. And I can speak a bit of French. But I, I told her that I, I can't speak any French, I didn't understand her, and that I didn't have any cash on me. And she didn't take no for an answer. And she followed me across the street and then asked if she could say something. And, and then she repeated, a little bit more clearly, that she was hungry. 
and that she needed $17 to be able to find a place to stay for that night. And there was, there was a bank literally right next to us. And she pointed to it and asked if I could just go to the ATM and just take out some money. And begrudgingly, really begrudgingly, I decided that I'd withdraw 20 bucks. And I didn't want to expose the fact to her that I just lied to her face about the money in my wallet. So I went in and I got some money out of the ATM and I gave it to her. And she was so thankful. She was incredibly grateful. And as I was getting ready to leave, she made another comment. And I didn't catch it all super clearly. But it was something to the effect of, of asking me to keep listening to the voice of God and to disregard that first voice because it wasn't his voice. And that really shook me up. That really shook me up. And as I walked away, I was just going through my head, and then I had this sort of lucid, clear moment where it was like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. And I heard him say, she saw you, and she saw me. And then he brought to mind the fact that that $25 in my wallet that I didn't want to admit I had, I'd received it unexpectedly as a gift the day before. I didn't need it. I had this humbling moment where I realized that God hadn't intended for that money to be for me. He reminded me that all I have is his. Everything I have is on loan from him. And I'm merely his steward. And that unexpected gift of money, it wasn't for me. I realized that this woman had probably been praying that day for God to provide for her somehow, to give her a place to sleep and to give to her her daily bread. And on that day, he answered her prayer through me. I wonder, what voice are we listening to? What voice are we listening to about how we should live our lives? Abraham says that if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The Pharisees, they refused to listen to Lazarus because they'd already made up their minds. But they didn't know how desperately they needed Lazarus, did they? They didn't realize how much they needed to listen to him. And we don't realize just how desperately we need to listen to Lazarus. Lazarus, that poor man in the street, the beggar with nothing, Lazarus is the one who needs to teach us how not to waste our lives. To the world, Lazarus just looks like he's thrown away his shot. He's wasted his potential. He's homeless. He's on the street, hungry and desperate, can't take care of himself. Who would ever think that he could actually have something to tell us about how to really live? This guy who threw away his shot, right? But Lazarus is exactly who we need to listen to. Earlier, I pointed out that Lazarus is the only one in this parable who has a name. The rich man is not known to God, but but Lazarus is. But there's something I didn't tell you. Because you see, it's actually really significant that Jesus gives Lazarus a name here. In fact, this is the only parable where Jesus ever gives anyone a name. And do you know what his name means? What Lazarus means? Lazarus means, God is my help. God is my help. The only person Jesus ever gives a name to is a beggar who's called, God is my help. 
That's not a wasted life. So many people in our society, in our city, so many of us would look at him and say, oh, he threw away his shot. He made the wrong choices or, or the system was set up against him. So, of course, he's got a wasted life. But God is my help. That's not a wasted shot. That's the life well lived. God is my help. You know what a wasted life is? It's the life that doesn't need any help from God. It's the life that doesn't know how to depend on God. The truly wasted life, when we've thrown away our shot, is when we live our life in a way that doesn't know how to depend on God with the things that we have and doesn't know how to depend upon God with the things that we do not have. We need Lazarus. We need to listen to Lazarus, to Lazarus who says, have mercy on me. I'm hungry. I'm hurting. I'm desperate. I have no place to sleep. I've got no place to call my own. I'm desperate and all I have is God. We need to spend time with Lazarus, with the people at our gate. Because Lazarus will tear away all the pride and all the veneer of life that we think is so important. When we listen to Lazarus, we we discover that all the stuff we've been pursuing, all the things that we thought were so important, they weren't nearly as important as we think. Because all those other things we think are so important, they're teaching us to depend on something other than God. They're forming us to trust in something else. And they're causing us to stake our hope on something that cannot support the weight of our soul. Because we're throwing away our shot. We're in desperate need of help. In the light of the kingdom of heaven, do you see who is really wasting their shot? Do you see it? You see, what appears like the wasted life to us is actually the path to abundant life. And while the rich man and his family may never have listened to Lazarus coming back from the dead, they didn't want to hear. God in his mercy has sent someone back from the dead. He raised Jesus to life. Will we listen? Will we hear him? Jesus is the one who rose from the dead to tell us just how desperately we need him. And he came and he spoke words of truth and life so that we could be freed and truly live. So may we not waste our lives. May we know and understand and trust that God is our help. And in light of that, May we truly live. Will you pray with me?